Good morning. If I can invite you to turn your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2, which you guys probably already have. But if you haven't, if you can turn to Ruth chapter 2 with me. Uh, We're continuing in our Easter series in the book of Ruth. Today we're going to be looking at Ruth chapter 2. But before we dive into Ruth chapter 2, I actually want to start with a story that happened uh, just after uh, Christ uh, resurrected. This, this, uh, this scene takes place in the Gospel of Luke, uh, in Luke chapter 24. Um, I'm just going to go and uh, read to you this little story. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be celebrating Easter, the resurrection of Christ. And this scene, just after the same day that Christ was resurrected, uh, the Gospel of Luke records this little scene. And it says in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So Jesus just appeared to these two men that were walking on the road. But their eyes were kept from recognizing Jesus. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Why were they sad? Because they just saw that their their Savior, the Messiah, had been crucified and is in the grave. But they didn't know about this uh, resurrection and, and, and that they didn't know that this person that was with them is Jesus himself. So they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him and said, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened uh, happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death. And crucified him. Verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they, but him they did not see. And Jesus said to the two men, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. In my house, I have a, uh, on, uh, above my, my computer desk is a almost complete set of the New Testament commentary by John MacArthur. I don't have an Old Testament commentary set. But wouldn't it be amazing to have a Old Testament commentary set written by Jesus Christ? And that is exactly what these two men got from the risen Lord. 
When Jesus rose from the dead and was walking with these two men, one who, who the name of one was Cleopas, it says that beginning with Moses and the prophets, through the Old Testament scripture, Jesus began to go through the scripture to these two young men and basically showing them, this is really talking about me, about Jesus, the Messiah. Now, we don't know exactly what Jesus said as he went through Moses and the prophets and scriptures, but it, it, it's, it's an interesting thought to think about as Jesus hits the book of Ruth to Cleopas and his friends. What, what things did, did Jesus say about the story of Ruth concerning himself? Although the story of Ruth takes place in the Old Testament and doesn't actually mention God explicitly, it's very clear that God is sovereignly working through the lives of the characters like Ruth and Naomi to show his loving kindness to his chosen people, Israel, and to all who come to him, even today through Jesus Christ. And so today we're going to be looking through chapter 2 of Ruth with two lenses, okay? So the first is we're going to look at it through a narrow lens, meaning that we're going to look at the immediate context, what is happening in the story. But more importantly, we're going to look at it through a wider lens and look at how the characters ultimately point to God, what he desires for his people, and really how this story, and even in, in Ruth chapter 2, really is showing and pointing to the gospel and pointing and exalting Jesus Christ. So as we go through this chapter, keep those two lenses in mind. Okay, we have the narrow lens, look at what's, what is happening between the characters, but also really more importantly, the wider lens. How is this story, the characters, how they're in, interacting with one another, how is this really portraying and pointing to Jesus Christ and the gospel? So let me pray for us before we continue. Our Heavenly Father, we just come before you. Oh Lord, humble us. Lord, teach us. Uh, Father, we desperately need you. Father, I desperately need you. Help me to get out of the way of the cross. And Lord, help me to just preach Christ and him crucified. Help me to just uh, point your people to the majesty and the beauty of Jesus Christ. May your gospel be preached faithfully today. Lord, I pray for all of us here that we would um, receive your word with humility, with thankfulness. Um, Lord, just change us from the inside out. Transform us through your word and cause our hearts to be greater lovers of Jesus and greater lovers of people. I pray these in your name. Amen. So let's walk through this chapter together and well, let's see how the, uh, the story continues to unfold. So Ruth chapter 2, uh, we're going to start from verse 1. It says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So in chapter 2, we are introduced with a new character. His name is Boaz. What else do we know of Boaz? Well, he is a relative of uh, Naomi. Uh, and her, her uh, you know, uh, husband, Elimelech, who died in chapter 1. He is also a worthy man. And this could mean he's a man of standing, he is wealthy, a man of good character, a man of uh, obedience to God. And he is also of the same clan of Elimelech. And these are all going to be important 
as the story unfolds. So just keep this in mind that Boaz is a worthy man, wealthy man of standing, good character, and he's also a relative and of the same clan of Elimelech. Verse 2, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. So everybody know some things about Ruth from chapter 1. Who is Ruth? What do we know about Ruth? Well, we know that her, her name is Ruth. She is a woman. She is a widow. Right Back in chapter 1, her uh, husband died. She has no children. She is a foreigner from a country that was a physical and, more importantly, a spiritual moral enemy of Israel. So this puts Ruth in a very, 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 very low social status. She is really in a desperate situation along with her mother-in-law, Naomi, looking for just food to survive, looking for familial security. See, for us, it, it, it might be hard to look at that situation and we might say, oh, that's not, it's not that bad. You know, you still have your mother-in-law, you still have some people around you. Um, but, but they didn't have, uh, that culture was very different than ours today. If you were a woman, no husband, no sons, foreigner, that put you in a very, very, very difficult and desperate situation. So we're already beginning to see in the first two verses just the, 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 the difference between Boaz and Ruth. Verse 3. It says, So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the, of the clan of Elimelech. So just a little bit of background. What, what is this gleaning in, in, in someone's field? So back then, uh, God had given uh, through his laws to his people that when you are harvesting your field, um, I mean, this might be foreign to us because we don't, we don't have a field. We don't go harvesting for food. We just go to 7-Eleven or Albertsons. But back then, when you had a, har- a field to harvest, God had commanded his people, when you're harvesting the field, don't uh, leave some on, on, the, on the edges of your field or the corners um, so that the poor, the widows, the destitute can, can come after you and pick those leftovers so that they can be fed as well. So this is really an act of compassion and care from God um, to take care of his people and those who were um, of very low social status. And so when Ruth tells uh, Naomi, hey, am I going to go, I'm going to go find a field to glean after. This is what she is asking. I'm going to go and just look for a field and see if I can find and ask permission from the owner if I can glean, pick, you know, the, the leftovers so that I can have some food to bring back to care for Naomi and herself. But what, what happens in verse 3? It says, the storyteller just, you know, masterfully crafts this in. It says that Ruth went out gleaned in the field after the reapers, she happened, she just so happened to come to the field that belonged to none other than who? Boaz. Of all the fields at that time that Ruth could have just, I don't know how she did it, 
Uh, maybe she covered her eyes and said, I'm eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Okay, I'm going to just go to that one. I don't know who's, you know, if I'm going to find favor, but I'm just going to go to it. And it just so happened that it belonged to Boaz. The author is really setting this stage up for, the, for us, for the hearers, that something amazing is about to happen, that God is working through it all. And what seems to be by chance, just so happened, is really, we know, the providence and sovereignty of God. There's nothing that just happens by luck. There's no such thing. We don't believe in luck or fate or coincidence. I mean, I'm just even thinking about um, Susan and Aaron, and they've been coming and worshiping with us for several months. And last week, I mean, I, I, I had the honor to just... Um, uh, uh, be with them for the baptism class and that they're thinking of being baptized in a few weeks. And, and then I start to think about, okay, how did that even come about? How did, you know, go from baptism, and I'm trying to trace back. You know, oh, it just so happened that my Uncle George bought a property in Chino to invest in years ago. And it just so happened that Aaron and Susan or living in that field. It just so happened that as newlyweds, me and Catherine were looking for a home at that time, but we couldn't find anything that would fit what we were looking for. Oh, and it just so happened that there was enough room on Uncle George's property for us to build a manufactured home. And it just so happened that as we settled on that property, on Telephone Avenue, literally just feet away from Aaron and Susan's house, that they were also in a place searching for a church to get plugged into. I remember the day when uh, Aaron came to my doorstep and I was, you know, we we're kind of like officially meeting for the first time. And uh, I, I mentioned something about, you know, I, I go to this church and he started texting me after that same day and said, hey, you know, what church do you go to? You know, uh, I, I'm actually, you know, me and my wife are, are, have been really searching for God and we really want to find a church to get plugged into. And I'm like, oh, what a coincidence. But then it doesn't even stop there. I keep thinking about how I even came to this church. It just so happened, I think it was like five or six years ago, after I graduated college, that even though I wanted to work at a coffee shop, God brought me to working at Corner Bakery. That was not my first choice, by the way. But it just so happened that I was looking for and searching for a church to join because I left uh, my, my other church at that time. And it just so happened that on my particular shift, that Alan was there at the same time I was working. It just so happened that I was serving him. And the rest is history. Whatever you're going through, the good, the bad, the big, the small, the things, especially the things that seem insignificant, nothing happens by chance. And know that God is working through it all. You never know what God is up to. In the end of verse 3 and in verse 4, um, the storyteller, the author, re-emphasizes the fact that Boaz is from the clan of Elimelech, that he's from Bethlehem, Bethlehem and that he is a worthy man. And so the, the, the reason why the storyteller keeps mentioning these things is really trying to paint this picture again of just how different Boaz is from Ruth. 
So Ruth goes and gleans in the, uh, in the field of Boaz. Boaz comes back to his field, and in verse 5, it reads, Then Boaz said to his young woman, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is that? I was like, check her out. Like, who is that? <laughs> Notice that Boaz doesn't say, what's her name? Or who is she? What does it say? He says, whose young woman is this? In other words, whom does she belong to? At this point, I think Boaz probably wanted to hear from his foreman because he, he's asking the, 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 the manager of his workers, whose young woman does this belong to? I think Boaz was probably um, wanting to hear something like, oh, she is a virgin, a young virgin Israelite whose father is a noble man of God. But that's not what he finds out, right? What does the servant say? Servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is a young Moabite woman who came back from, with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. And so she came and she continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So that's not what Boaz probably wanted to hear. You know, it's like, um, it's like think of a single person who is actively, you know, looking for a soulmate. Maybe for us, if we were married, you guys remember that time. Or maybe you guys are in that place right now uh, looking for a soulmate. Uh, maybe you have it all pictured in your head. Okay, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to go to a coffee shop. I'm going to bring my Bible and my journal. I'm going to get that, you know, uh, caramel latte. I'm going to sit down. And then out of nowhere, as I'm reading and just, you know, being all spiritual, you know, this, this like, you know, knight and shining Christian guy comes through the door and, and he's, you know, has, he's just like attractive. He orders a latte, sits next to you. And then you guys have like, oh, what are you reading there? Oh, yeah, I'm reading a Bible. Oh, no way. And you start having a conversation and, and then you're thinking like, oh, man, God, this is he's the one. Right. He, he's the one. And after the conversation, at the end, you know, what if he says something like, oh, it was nice meeting you, but um, I actually have to go back to my wife and kids. And she's like, are you kidding me? Disappointed. I don't know if Boaz maybe felt that way. Um, but I think as we read, uh, as we continue, we find something just very not, not as what we expect. My first main point, I have three, by the way, and I'll just uh, kind of give, give you the three uh, main things. Um, the first is his kindness. And when I say his, I'm referring, remember the narrow lens. Uh, his is going to refer to Boaz, but in the wider, bigger lens, his is, is really referring to Jesus Christ. So my first main point is his kindness, Boaz's kindness, but ultimately Christ's kindness. Um, I'll just give you the, the, the second and third one real quick. His invitation, again, Boaz's invitation, but ultimately Christ's invitation and lastly, his redeeming work. So first, we're going to look at his kindness. So let's see what, what, what happens after Boaz realizes that this young, attractive woman is a Moabite widow, no sons, living with her mother-in-law. Verse 8, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, 
Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. But keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And sometimes we might read this and just say, oh, he's being really kind. But I think the original hearers back in that that time period in the ancient Near East, as they're listening to the story, they, their, their eyes would have just opened so wide, their mouths would have and jaws would have dropped to hear what Boaz is actually doing for Ruth. Because in his kindness, Boaz is actually doing above and beyond what he is expected or required. And let me explain. In Leviticus 19, 9 through 10, God gives this law, um, and actually already explained, um, you know, as, as a widow or poor person comes to glean uh, or, or desires to glean after the field of, um, of another, the owner can give permission to that person and say, okay, yes, yeah, so you can glean after, t- basically take the leftovers after, you know, my workers have harvested the field so that you can be, you know, fed. That was it. That was the, that was the instruction from God. Nothing more, nothing less. So at this point, Boaz could have just said, okay, yes, I gave you permission, Ruth. You can go glean. Um, and if you want to come back another time, okay, that's great. But if not, you know, no harm, no foul. And he could have just left. But he doesn't do that, right? In his kindness, he goes way beyond that by offering her leadership. It says, now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one. Keep close to my young woman. Boaz is giving her instructions, giving her leadership and saying, hey, stay in this field. I know I'm giving you permission to glean, but I want to show you so much more kindness. Not only leadership, but protection. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? It's almost like Boaz is saying to Ruth, hey, don't worry about other people harassing you, insulting you, because you are a foreign Moabite widow. You know, in fact, I already had a pep talk with my staff team. We had a staff team this morning, and I told them, hey, don't touch her. She's off limits. Don't look at her, you know, uh, you know with, with any ill intent. And he's providing Ruth provision. When you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. When you, Ruth, a woman, are thirsty, just go drink from the water that the men have drawn. You know, th- th- this doesn't register for, for us in this culture today because when we go to Denny's, you know, our waiter it can be you know, a, a guy, it could be a male, a female. And it's just like, oh, yeah, they're serving us water or Sprite, Coke, whatever it is. Back then, men drew water from themselves. Women drew water for men. Men don't draw water for women. And so to read Boaz giving this kindness and instruction to Ruth and saying, hey, if you are thirsty, just go drink from what the men have drawn. This is like, what? <laughs> Do you see the kindness of Boaz 
towards Ruth. It, 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 this is an undeserved kindness. But as we look at it through the wider lens, where do we see Christ and the gospel here? Do you remember the religious leaders reacting to Jesus? He has gone into the house of sinners. Does he not know that this woman is an adulteress? Why on earth is Jesus talking with a Samaritan woman? This is what the original hearers probably would have said the same thing about Boaz to Ruth. Why is Boaz showing so much kindness to Ruth? But as we look at how Boaz's kindness towards Ruth is really, again, ultimately pointing to the gospel and pointing to the person of Jesus Christ, what we see is that Christ's kindness towards us completely overshadows the kind of kindness that Boaz is showing to Ruth. In Philippians 2, 6-8, listen to what it says of Christ, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. We just looked at Ruth and Boaz in the social status, this ladder. Boaz is up here, Ruth is down here, and so the kindness that Ruth is showing to Boaz, or that, that Boaz is showing to Ruth is tremendous. How much more the kindness of Christ, who is eternally God, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, left heaven's heights, did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming down to take the form of a slave and sharing in human nature to dwell amongst sinful men like you and I. What kindness are we dealing with here? I like how John Donne says it. Twas much that man was made like God before, but that God should be made like man, much more. How do you even respond to such undeserved kindness? Verse 10 Look at how Ruth responds to the leadership, protection, provision, and kindness of Boaz. It says in verse 10, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? In the face of such undeserved kindness, Ruth falls to her face before Boaz and says, who am I? I'm a foreigner, a Moabite widowed barren woman. Who am I to receive such kindness from you? To even find favor in your eyes. But I love the fact that Ruth's response is echoed by her great grandson, David, who said in Psalm chapter 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the mouths of babies and infants, you have ordained praise to silence the enemy and still the avenger. When I look at the heavens, 
the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set into place. King David said, what is man that you are mindful of? Human beings that you would care for. This is the same King David who said in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when King David was in his palace, he's king at this point, not the shepherd boy. He's king of Israel. And one day he, he, he's just chilling in, in his palace. And he says, I'm living in a palace, but my God is living in a tent. I had this idea. I'm going to go build a temple. I'm going to go build a house for my God. And so God comes back through the prophet Nathan, and God says, this is paraphrased. Thanks, David, but I'm going to do one better. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. And this was pointing to uh, both uh, Solomon's temple. Uh, David's son, uh, Solomon, is going to build a temple, uh, the first temple for, uh, for the Lord. But I think God is also really pointing to the everlasting kingdom through Jesus Christ. And in this favor that David is receiving from the Lord, what was his response? He falls down before God and says, Who am I and what is my house that you would do such a thing as this for me? I hope that as we come before the gospel, before the cross of Jesus Christ, that that is also your response and our response. Who are we to deserve such kindness and love from Jesus? When the Pharisees complained to Jesus, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? What did Jesus reply? I haven't come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners to repentance. It's not the righteous, the religious, those who have it all together that attracts Jesus. Rather, it is the ones who feel like they are at the end of themselves. Desperate, hopeless, broken, and helpless. Those are the people that Jesus is drawn to the most. The kindness of the Lord is meant to lead you to repentance, to turn to Him. And this ought to be our response as we see the depths of our unworthiness in the face of the massive loving kindness of Jesus towards us. As the song says, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned, unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. In this exchange between Ruth and Boaz, Boaz is affirming the kindness that Ruth had shown to Naomi in verse 11. In verse 11 it says, But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and became, and came to a people that you did not know before. And then in verse 12, Boaz says to Ruth, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord the God of Israel, under whose wings you have taken refuge. 
I think Boaz surely had in mind, as, as he said, the Lord repay you for uh, all that you've done. I think Boaz, of course, is referring to the kindness that Ruth showed to Naomi back in chapter 1. But I think more importantly, Boaz, I think, had in mind the faith that Ruth had in the God of Israel. That he is saying, may God repay you for your faith in God, under whose wings you have taken refuge. You know, it would never have crossed neither Boaz nor Ruth's mind in this moment, in their, in their acts of kindness towards one another, in their faith towards the God of Israel. I don't think it would ever cross their minds that this would eventually lead to their marriage, eventually lead to them begetting their son Obed, eventually their great-grandson King David. Boaz never, probably would never have imagined that his kindness towards Ruth and his prayer of God rewarding her, uh, her kindness and faith in God would eventually work its way by God to the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. They were simply trying to be obedient to God and taking that step of faith and trusting in the God of Israel. And I just want to give this challenge to you even today, especially to our young uh, students and, and, um, and our youths. You never know what your small step of faith and your small step of trusting in Jesus might lead to. You might think it's so small, it's so insignificant. I'm, I'm just a teenager. I'm just a high school student. What if you took your two small fish and your five small loaves of bread and said, this is not much... I, there's no way I can feed 5,000 people. But what would happen if you just took that step of faith and said, Jesus, I'm going to trust in you? Can you imagine what Jesus could do with your small step of faith? And what if God is orchestrating through those small steps of faith in him, whatever your circumstances, to bring about something good that you could have never imagined? God will do through Boaz and Ruth's kindness and faith in God what they could have never imagined or think or thought of. His invitation, number two. In verse 14, it gets better. And so far, we're already seeing just undeserved kindness from, from uh, Boaz to Ruth. In verse 14, it says, At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come. Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. Boaz is now continuing to show undeserved kindness and says, Ruth, I want you to come join me for dinner. This is a Moabite, a widow, barren, poor woman who at the most should only have permission to glean after the field of Boaz. And now Boaz, more than just giving permission, giving her uh, instruction, giving her protection, giving her provision, is now inviting Ruth to join him, have fellowship with him at the table. God also is inviting his people to worship him alone. In Isaiah 55, God says, Come, everyone who thirsts, Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant.
Jesus gives the ultimate invitation. Boaz's invitation to Ruth is pales in comparison to the invitation that Christ is giving to us when he says to come to him for eternal life. Come to me to find rest. John 14, 6, it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is an invitation to come to Jesus for life, for eternal life. And more than that, those who come to Christ and eat his body and drink his blood will live. Look at what Boaz is saying. He says, come, that's an invitation, and eat bread and wine. I don't know about you, but I, I think when Jesus was talking to the two men on the Emmaus Road to Cleopas, as he gets to this point, I wonder if Jesus was saying to Cleopas, the bread and the wine is my body and my blood. Come, eat my body, drink my blood, and have life. Christ is inviting us into fellowship with him, into a relationship with him, into having a, a, an intimate meal around his table. But more than that, it, it, it gets better. I'm thinking, how can it get better? It does. Boaz goes further and invites Ruth. Look at, look at what happens in the middle of verse uh, uh, 18. Oh, starting in the, in the beginning. She took it, uh, she took it up and went, oh, sorry, no, uh, verse 14. So she sat beside the reapers. So she responded to the invitation. She went and sat at the table. But look at what happens next. He passed to her roasted grain. Who passed who the roasted grain? Boaz passed to Ruth. Boaz, the man the Israelite, the worthy man of God, is now not just inviting Ruth to sit and have some bread and wine. He is now serving her. Do you see Christ in this? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many Christ is the ultimate server. He came to serve us. He came to die for us and to be a ransom for many. But not only did Jesus serve us in his earthly ministry, Luke 12 in the parable portrays Jesus at his second coming like this. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Not only did Jesus serve us by coming down from heaven, dying on the cross, giving us eternal life. In his second coming, he continues to serve us. Jesus invites us to fellowship. He invites us to be served. But he is also inviting us to be satisfied. Because after he passes roasted grain to Ruth, it says she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When Ruth and Naomi came back to Bethlehem, they had nothing. 
And now Ruth not only had the grain that she gleaned from that day, she was also able to eat the bread and drink the wine until she was satisfied, until she was full. You guys remember that feeling when you guys go to you know, a restaurant for dinner and you're just stuffing yourself? At the end, you're just like, dude, I have food coma. I'm so full, I can't even move. This is like Ruth. I'm so full, I'm so satisfied. Not only was she satisfied, she had leftovers. I could just imagine one of the servants saying, hey, do you, want, do you need a to-go box for that? So she bought some leftovers home. When Jesus was feeding the 5,000, the people ate and were satisfied and had baskets of leftover. And I think the point of, of, that, uh, of that story, and, and even in, in, in the story of Ruth, even though Ruth was satisfied with the bread and the grain and the barley, she knew that she would still be hungry at some point. She knew that she will still be thirsty at some point. She could only truly be satisfied by the bread of life. And Jesus, as the bread of life, is the one who ultimately grants life to those who would come to him. And so I want to ask you, is your heart satisfied? Are you, are, or are you restless in, in, in life? Are you, do you feel this constantly chasing after the things of this world? Are you satisfied in Jesus? I love what St. Augustine says. Because we are made for God, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Boaz continues not only to invite Ruth to fellowship, to be served, to be satisfied, but also to enjoy abundant grace. Ruth took home that day an ephah of barley. And you're probably saying, what is that? And to put it into perspective, an ephah of barley would be roughly 30 to 40 pounds of barley. That's a lot to take home. But to put into perspective, the average daily take home of a worker in that time, guess how much was the average Two to three pounds. That was the average, two to three pounds a day for a worker to take home. And here Ruth is taking home 30 to 40 pounds. This is abundant grace, yet this pales in the comparison with the grace that Jesus Christ has shown us. On Friday night in our life group, I, uh, we, we kind of talked about uh, mercy as being something that we don't get that we did deserve. Right? We didn't, uh, we, we deserve death, but God didn't give us death. But then grace is when we get something that we don't deserve. What did we get that we don't deserve? We did not deserve forgiveness. We did not deserve life. We did not deserve hope. We did not deserve peace or joy. We did not deserve the love of God. And Ephesians talks about how we are saved by God's grace. But it's amazing that God does not just show us grace at the cross, but even Ephesians 2.7, it says, so that in the coming ages, for eternity, God might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness 
of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. Jesus continually shows his abundant grace towards us at the cross now and for eternity. Jesus is so kind to us to come down from heaven to heights, to die on the cross, to invite us to have fellowship with him, to be served by him, to be satisfied in him, to receive and to enjoy his abundant grace. And lastly, his redeeming work. When Ruth returns to Naomi with all the grain, I know I only have five minutes. When Ruth returns to Naomi with all the grain of leftovers, neither Ruth or Naomi saw the pieces coming together, right? Because Ruth knew of Boaz, because he was, you know, had that conversation, you know, had the meal together, but she didn't know the significance of Boaz as a kinsman redeemer. And I'll, I'll, we'll touch on that in, in just a second. On the other hand, Naomi knew of Ruth, or sorry, uh, Naomi Ruth knew of Boaz as uh, a, a, a close relative and a kinsman redeemer, but she had no idea that Ruth was gleaning in his field. But now in verse 19, that's when, as the, the hearers of the story, we finally see the, the pieces coming together. In verse 19, uh, her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean? Where have you found work? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. So Ruth told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And you can just see the, the, the light bulb coming on above Naomi's head. It's like those moments in life where you just, you're just trying to walk in obedience to God. You think, you know, oh, I'm just making decisions and, you know, just going to school, going to work, you know, helping this person out, um, obeying my parents, making these decisions. And then at some point, God shows what he was doing all along. And you're, you're just like, wow, that's why God brought me to this decision that led to this, that led to this, and that finally led to today. In the Mosaic Law, God provides two legal institutions, land redemption and leveret marriage. Um, just to quickly summarize, um, when a family uh, is in a desperate situation, they have to sell their land. Um, God provides this provision where the close relative would buy that property instead of having that land sold to someone outside of the family. In the leveret marriage, kind of similar, when a man dies and has no sons with his wife, then his brother shall take his wife of the dead husband in hopes of bearing a son so that the son shall continue the family line of the dead husband. Again, these uh, institutions, uh, legal uh, uh, instructions from God was really uh, so that the family name and the family line can continue on. This was huge back then because if you could not continue your family name through having sons, then you would be blotted out of Israel pretty much. So when Naomi realizes that there is now hope for her and for Ruth because she says, that man that you were gleaning Oh, his name was Boaz. Boaz! He's our kinsman redeemer. There is hope for their family line to continue. There is hope for her family. 
And now Naomi and Ruth in a desperate situation because there were women, no husbands, no sons. But now God brings along Boaz, able to redeem the land of Elimelech and thus providing security for Naomi and Ruth. You know, likewise, we are also in a spiritually desperate situation. We are enslaved to sin without life, without hope. But Christ redeems us, not by buying our property, but redeems us through his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. See, Naomi and Ruth were in a desperate situation because they had to think about where are we going to get food and how are we going to continue our family line. We have no husbands, no sons. That is like the most important thing that they're thinking about. But what we need most is not someone to save you from financial debt, nor to save you from depression or anxiety. It is not someone to save you from singleness or childlessness. What you need first and foremost is someone to save you from your sins. And Jesus Christ came to purchase you, not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood. This story of Ruth, especially in Ruth chapter 2, as we look through, the kindness of Boaz towards, towards Ruth and, and Naomi, the response of uh, Ruth falling before the kindness of Boaz, the faith that um, they had in the Lord, this is really just a foreshadow of the gospel. This is a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our ultimate redeemer. Jesus Christ is our ultimate savior and server. Jesus Christ gives us the ultimate invitation to have life eternal. Jesus Christ is the one who shows infinite, undeserved loving kindness to us. So as we close, let me just put all of these pieces together. Christ's kindness is displayed when he left heaven's heights to come down in our likeness so that he could live the life that we should have lived and die the death we deserve to die. And his kindness will continue to be displayed for eternity when he will continue showing his people his infinite kindness towards us. Christ's invitation is displayed when he offered his body on the, and, and blood on the cross, not coming to be served, but to, be, but to serve and die for us. And he invites us to come to him, trust in him alone for eternal life. Not only that, his invitation continues even to the second coming as he invites us to be served by him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And lastly, Christ's redeeming work is displayed when he shed his blood and thus granting the forgiveness of sins. His redeeming work continues both now as he sanctifies us and redeems us from the power of sin, and when Christ returns, our earthly bodies will be redeemed and will be given new resurrected bodies where we will not be subject to pain, disease, cancer, death, and decay. I hope that as we went through Ruth chapter 2 that you were more than just seeing the characters of Boaz and, and, and Ruth and the kindness that they were showing towards one another, I, I hope that you are able to really see Jesus Christ. We started our sermon today with the story of Cleopas and his friend, and um, I thought it would be fitting to end with that story. In Luke chapter 27, um, this is how that scene ends. Or sorry, chapter 24. 
So beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures, including Ruth, the things concerning himself. Verse 28, so they drew near to the village which they were going. He acted as if he was not going any further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's uh, evening and the day is now far spent. So Jesus went to stay with the two men. When he was at table with them, Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And at that moment, their eyes were open and they recognized Jesus. He vanished from their sight and they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Did you sense your heart burn within you today as you heard the good news of Jesus? of his kindness, of his invitation, of his love and his mercy and his redeeming work, that you feel the heaviness of your sin and rebellion towards God, but also the hope and joy that Jesus offers eternal life through his death on the cross. And if so, then believe in Jesus and be saved. Turn away from gleaning after the fields of this world. And come and glean in the field of Christ today where you will be satisfied. And if you want to make that decision today, or if you want to know more about what trusting in Jesus, following Jesus means, then I urge you, do not leave this place without talking to somebody about this. This could be the day when Jesus says, today salvation has come upon that house. And if you have already trusted in Christ for salvation, walking in, in, in faithful obedience, um, in a moment, we're going to be taking communion. Um, and as you partake in the Lord's table, remember his kindness. Remember just how different he is and was and how separate we were because of our sin. And yet Jesus came to take the form of sinful flesh and to die for us. So as you partake, remember his kindness towards us and how he came to serve you by breaking his body and pouring out his blood. So as we continue into communion, I just want to um, ask that you guys um, take this moment um, to reflect on what God has spoken to you today. Uh, if you've trusted in Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and you followed in the obedience of baptism, I'd like to invite you to partake in the Lord's Supper with us. Partake in this joyful remembrance and celebration of what Christ has done on the cross and how he rose again on the third day. This is, this is kindness like we've never seen. This is love like we've never seen. Remember that. And if you're not a believer, have not been baptized yet, I, I just kindly ask that you refrain from taking the elements as we take the Lord's Supper, even though we pray that you will soon come to the kindness, to the love, and the forgiveness and the mercy of Jesus Christ for your salvation. Take this moment to meditate.